fictional friends and welcome to uh, the first episode of Fully Booked, a podcast for casual bookworms all over the place. I'm Megan. And I'm Shireen. And uh, it's our first episode, which I already mentioned. Super excited. <laughs> Yay. Um, we love books. I don't even know how else to describe it. <laughs> we love books. And so we just decided that we have, you know, at first we've been writing about them. We have a blog, so we've been writing about them and we decided that it just wasn't enough. So we felt the need to start talking about them because too. we have way too much to say and we're a lot more endearing. And I guess we're, you know <laughs> what, I guess speak. we, yeah, <laughs> I guess we're just, uh, we're kind of loud and annoying about it. So, you know, <laughs> hey, we're happy that you're here though. So for our first episode and for our first month over here at Fully Booked, uh, we're talking classics. It felt like a really good jumping off point for us. Mm-hmm. Um, so today we're going to just take a look at our incredibly subjective list of favorite classics. So the classics that each of us, I guess, are at the top of our list, what we love about them, ones that we think everybody should read, mm-hmm. everybody should check out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm really, I'm really excited about it. But okay, before we get started though, um, we're just going to do a little round of what's, you know, sitting on your nightstand right now. What are you reading right now, Shereen? Well, right now I'm reading, um, These Violent Delights. Um, it's a modern take on Romeo and Juliet. Well, modern, set in the twenties, but <laughs> well, you know, it came out more recently. It's like a different twist on it with, uh, some monsters and it's in Shanghai. Um, and I'll be honest, I have been struggling to get through it. Oh, yeah. I'm like halfway through and I'm like, I'm trying to power through. But, you know, normally I can like devour these books in like pretty much a day or two. Mm -hmm. And it has been on my nightstand for a hot minute, let me tell you. (laughs) You know what? It's You know what? I can see that it's probably like not for everybody. I think I just really like the vibe of it. Mm. Something I read it last year and there was something about the vibe of I think just like Shanghai and like a different twist on Romeo and Juliet which Mm -hmm. like you know gets tired kind of quickly so yeah so I really I don't know I really I thought it was really fun but it did take me like a good 10 chapters to get invested in the characters I'm not gonna lie like I had to I had to kind of be like okay where's this going like I'm curious I'm interested in the story yeah there's like a lake monster yeah I'd like to understand what that's about (laughs) Um, and I don't yet know anything about this lake monster so you'll get there (laughs) I'll get there (laughs) Um, but yeah, but it's an interesting one. Also, it has like a fucking beautiful cover. It does. It really does. You know, it's just like book cover porn and you're like, oh, that's so nice. It's one of those. You're not supposed to judge a book by its cover. Let's not lie. We all do it constantly. That's like (laughs) if I'm walking through the bookstore and I don't have like a list out of specific ones that I'm Mm -hmm. looking for, that is what I'll do. I'll just be like, oh, this is nice. And I'll just pick it up and be interested (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was one of my motivations for <laughs> buying this one. But also, you said it was good, so I like it. I just picked up. I've picked up the second one. It's a duology. I haven't read the second book yet, oh, but I'm curious more. to see how. Well, it's supposed to be like a two-part story. I'm curious to see how it ends. I'm also really impressed with the fact that this girl's like in university and she's just published this book. Yeah, so. it's, it's not. It's very well written. Yeah, it's. It might be more me than anything. Um, but uh, yeah, what about you? What's on your nightstand? I am, what the heck am I reading? Oh, <laughs> I'm reading, I just, so I just reread The Outsiders for the first time in like mm. a very long time, which mm. was so fun because it's been mm. years um, and I had a great Takes time. back to middle school. Yeah, and I love it. You know, it's short, but it's great and I just had a really good time kind of getting back into that. And um, I'm also in the middle of reading a book called uh, City of Villains mm. by Estelle Lore or something. I don't remember. It's fine. Um, it's sort of like a 
kind of fantasy. It's like a mix of a bunch of things. It's like kind of a fantasy noir sort of story, you know, more modern, but also incorporates like modern takes on Disney villains into it. It's like, yeah, it's like a city following like a catastrophe, kind of dystopian to a certain extent, Mm -hmm. but the noir and the mystery overtakes it. So I appreciate that because dystopian fiction is not my favorite. Mm -hmm. Me neither. Um, Yeah. Following, you know, sort of different characters that are, I guess, considered less than I suppose, but they're like modeled after Disney villains. It's an interesting take on it. I'm like a ways in now. I don't know if I'm super hooked by the story, Mm. um, but there is a mystery that I'm curious to follow and I'm curious to see kind of like where it goes. But you know, you've got like an Ursula character, a Maleficent character and like a few different things like that. So it's kind of fun in Mm. a nostalgic sort of way. So I think that's probably why some people get sucked into it. It's interesting. I want to see where it goes. I'm really curious as to what my rating will be after I'm done. Mm. Um, But yeah, that's where I'm at with it right now. And since this is our first episode, we should probably let y'all know um, when we're talking about what's on our nightstands, you will notice that most of what I read is young adult <laughs> fantasy literature. If you want to know what <laughs> what recommendation recommendation Shereen has for this, um, it's just going to be all young adult stuff. We'll be like, what are you reading? Well, oh, well, this time, yeah. Megan will mostly be some form of horror. So Horror, thriller, mystery, yeah. whatever, you know. Um, I need a dead body in mind for it to be more interesting and you will not really catch either of us um excited about sci-fi very much no you know what when it's good it's real good um but i need to be i need to be in the mood i need to be in the frame of mind for a good science fiction novel and i need specific sci-fi like i need i need like more urban sci-fi like i don't want anything set in space i don't care i can't do it i don't i just don't care about it but if you're telling me like oh it's like you know sort of very um, advanced technology and stuff like that, like very a la like Blade Runner, like mm. on Earth, mm. but like in a newer sort of mm. world in the future. Cool. I can roll with that. that right. Like that one I'm kind of fine with. But yeah, as soon as you give me astronauts and put me in space, I just fall asleep. I just completely lose interest. I'm sorry. So you won't <laughs> catch us giving good reviews of any Philip K. Dick or um, Mr. Orson Scott Card. I just don't You think piece we're... of garbage. Yeah. <laughs> I just don't think we're going <laughs> to read it in the first place. So no, we're not going to hear anything about it here. So we have digressed, which there is a very good chance we're going to be doing on pretty much all of our podcasts. All of them. Yeah. <laughs> Well, our episodes of our yeah. podcast. Today. But uh, yeah, my God. Okay, let's get into it. Let's talk about our favorite classics. All right. <clears throat> All right, Green, <laughs> you go first. Hit me. What's your first favorite classic? Okay, so my first favorite classic that I chose um, is with- Withering. <laughs> it's Withering. How are you supposed to say? I think it's Wuthering, but I could wuthering? just be, I could be too North American about it. Maybe it is Wuthering. I, I don't, don't know. know. Anyway, I've always pronounced it Wuthering. So it's Wuthering Heights um, by Emily Bronte, written in 1817. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a gothic novel. Um, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. So what I really like about this, actually, is the characters. And I know that that's a little bit out of the norm because most people really detest the characters but I think that that's the whole point is that you're supposed to hate them I don't know if it was the point when it was written but I feel like it's the point now right um and I just think what I like about it is that they're so um (laughs) shamelessly selfish every single (laughs) one of them um and so you know this story goes along we're looking at this wealthy family and um 
one day, Mr. Earnshaw, he goes to Liverpool and he comes home with this orphan, Heathcliff. And then, you know, this whole like epic story, but not really an epic story ensues where yeah. this really like crusty, like grouchy orphan child. Crusty. <laughs> that was a descriptor, <laughs> that's for sure. Oh God. Heathcliff comes in and, um, you know, he, he becomes favored by Mr. Earnshaw and it just causes like a domino effect of horrible circumstances um, where, you know, you've got revenge, you've got love, um, unfulfilled, unrequited love. There has to be. It's a gothic novel. <laughs> if is. there is not a ghost, then there has to be unrequited love of some sort. Well, there's a bit of a ghost because, like, uh, Heathcliff, when, when um, you know, the original Catherine, because um, her daughter is named Catherine, um, but when... Catherine, who Heathcliff fell in love with, when she dies, he's like speaking to her spirit for the rest of the story. Oh, and God, so, that's right. And so there's, you know, there is your ghostly specter <laughs> in the story. So it really does have everything that you could hope for from a gothic novel. Um, but in addition, you've got these characters who are just absolutely despicable. Um, and the whole story is really just of Heathcliff trying to get revenge um for no good reason really no. it's just that he was kind of wronged but like Catherine died and he didn't get to be with her and so all he really wants um is to get his own back on um Linton Edgar Linton and the whole Linton family because uh, Catherine married Linton she had a child with him but she always loved Heathcliff and then she has her child named Catherine whom he's not very nice to you'd think that he might yeah. be but that's just not how Heathcliff rolls he's just kind of a shit <laughs> he is a shit and like that's always been his mo and he's never he again he's just shameless about it that he's like I'm a bit of a dickhead this is who I am. That maybe that's why maybe that's why you like it. Maybe that's just something to appreciate is just someone who's like I'm an asshole. I know. I know it and I'm going to keep doing my asshole things until I die, which yeah. is essentially what he does. He just makes everyone's life miserable um including his own including just, his own yeah because he's so but i think again i think he he just revels in misery whether it's his own misery or someone else's misery um he and Catherine are very similar in that way and you know at the beginning of the of the story you almost think that Catherine's going to redeem herself because you're like oh she's in love with this linton person um i don't think she is i think she is kind of in love with the idea of being in love and and she doesn't yeah. really want to be as despicable as heathcliff but i think at the end of the day she is yeah <laughs> and yeah there's really no escaping that which i think is you know part of the message of the story is that you can't really escape who you are um and you know Catherine leaves behind this daughter whose life becomes miserable because of Heathcliff and eventually um she does inherit you know the manor but um the story is kind of told in a lot of back and forth flashbacks so it becomes very confusing as you're reading it and and also with two characters named Catherine as you're going through God. the story you're trying to kind of pinpoint and figure out who's who in the zoo here um <laughs> it sure is a zoo it sure is a zoo um but overall i guess my point is that if you like a good gothic novel my opinion is that this is where it's at it's got all your elements of 
a gothic novel. It has been iconic. Oh, yeah. Um, it is quoted. It's spoken about. There are songs about it. I encourage you to listen to them. They're quite good. <laughs> um, and I would say give it a read. It's not a very long story. Yeah, that's true. You know what? It's not a, a tome. It is not no. one of those four or five hundred page right. just like bricks that lands in front of you and you're just overwhelmed yeah. by the idea, particularly of reading a period piece. Sometimes you can't help it. You can't help sometimes but get this. And like, you know, when people get classics, classics are so often just so long. So long. And it's so difficult sometimes, you know, when People were like, hey, I don't read many classics. I'd like to get into it, but I would like to get into it in a way that doesn't immediately turn me off of the idea right. of doing so. Not everyone exactly. wants to read it. Like a massive novel like this every time they pick up um, a book, particularly a book that was not written anytime exactly. recently. Exactly. And so that's what I appreciate about this one. It's kind of short to the point. You really get to absorb this like... <laughs> misery plethora of misery of characters oh yeah and then you can kind of close it and be like wow that's what that book is all about but it, it is worth a read um and it is actually one of my favorite classics because of who the characters are yeah it's it's stupid i it's one of those books that i feel like i shouldn't like but yeah. i do because these people are just trash, trash. Just trash. make a little meme of them being like we're trash just like jumping into a garbage can <laughs> That's <laughs> what you should do with Catherine yeah. and Heathcliff. Yeah. No one should ever, ever take this story and think that it is romantic and should be reality. Well, it's funny that you say that because as you were just saying, <laughs> they're all trash, especially Catherine and Heathcliff. I was like, but in a way, it's romantic because is this, it? <laughs> is it because though? they love each other so much that they decide to make everything miserable i can't decide <laughs> if they love each other very much or if they love the idea of being miserable i don't know what it is there is some pleasure taken definitely especially heathcliff 100 like he just yeah. loves misery yeah and misery loves company so i think that's where Catherine comes oh, in that here. makes sense yeah there you go <laughs> so megan why don't you tell us about one of your favorites? all right Okay, we're moving on to, I mean, still something that has its own, like, I guess, like, you know, particularly harrowing or sad moments, um, but my first pick for classics is Little Women. It is... Always a classic. Oh, man. It is, like, the one of the ultimate comfort reads for some reason. There's something about it when you know like any most times of the year but especially like in the spring and in the late fall it just feels like one of those books that you just want to pick up it's like a warm hug it's a family story which is not necessarily something I'm usually drawn to that much but god I love the characters in this book mm. just everybody all of the sisters have something to like about them which I think is difficult sometimes when you have like a large cast and even the the outside characters you know like you have the March family and like their mom Marmy is wonderful even their dad when he does come back from the war eventually you know it's Civil War era set but like Laurie like the boy from close by who falls in love with Joe and stuff it's just oh everybody's everybody has something endearing about them there's mm. just and there's something about this book, you know, it, so it follows the March sisters for anybody who's not aware um, or who hasn't seen that Greta Gerwig adaptation, which was so good. Amazing. So good. Mm -hmm. um, anybody who's not seen that or hasn't read the book, it's set during the Civil War. It was initially published in, I think, 1868 and 69. It was initially published in two volumes because it's quite long. Um, and it just follows the March family sort of American Civil War area. They're in Massachusetts, if I'm not mistaken. And they are 
young teenagers, pretty much all of them, when the book starts, and it just follows them through the course of their young lives and all of the changes that they experience because of, uh, you know, their lower class status, because of the war, because of just life and everything that all the different decisions that they're making in their lives and everything that they want to become. I think Joe March is like the one of the original, I think, like female characters that I remember reading that I really identified with and wanting to be independent and mm. wanting to carve her own way in the world and mm. not feeling like she needed to have anyone help her with that. You know, all of her frustrations, cause she's trying to write and get a novel published. Mm -hmm. All of the frustrations she experiences as a writer, you know, having the book sent back to her and telling them like, oh no, it's bad. You got to edit it down by this much and do this with it. She gets so frustrated with it. And I feel like that's something very relatable for anybody who produces any form of art, mm. no matter like, or media, mm. no matter what it is, you know, sending it to someone and being told it's not very good, like getting mm -hmm. a rejection or being told that they have to change I guess the way that they truly believe it should be mm. produced or written, whatever you'd like to call it, is really like a relatable thing. Like yeah. it's even relatable if you look back to like high school, you wrote an essay and your teacher was like, yeah, this uh, this wasn't, you know, you should really do this differently or that yeah. differently. And you're sitting there like, idiot. Like that's, just, you know. That's my essay. I should be able to decide. And Yeah. And it's true. And I think that, you know, it's a sentiment that is – old but also very relevant today you oh know? yeah anytime anybody produces art and it gets rejected for whatever reason that will never not be something that hurts a person Absolutely. I don't think it's possible art is obviously subjective so I think it's also very difficult to judge it yeah you can judge it based on your opinion of it mm -hmm. but I feel like that's a difficult thing you know when it comes to critics yeah and there are critics in every form of media you know whether it be like you know like whether it be actual like you know works of art whether it be books whether it be films yep. song whatever Anything. you'd like to mm -hmm. you know whatever it is that you know is your niche or your media that you're producing um yeah, I feel like that I feel like that's something that everybody feels, you know, it doesn't even matter even if you don't do anything like that being rejected for a job that you really mm. want, something that you worked on that you poured your yourself into. Um and I think that that's what's very endearing about this character and to your point, you know, her her feminist, you know, yeah. stature that she brings from so it's a fairly old story, but, mm -hmm. you know, what I loved about this book is that you're really rooting for every character. You are, yeah. yeah. And just everything that they go through, like, you know, like uh, Beth, even the sister who passes away later on yeah. because, you know, she visits a family with scarlet fever. Right. She contracts it. She does get over it, but her health is just never able to fully recover right. after that. Um, just... I don't know just it's really it's really upsetting Beth's death is always really sad but yeah I find I find like even you know even that like a person being selfless going to see people trying to help their neighbors you know this family spends a lot of their time trying to do stuff like that to mm. help out be charitable neighbors, yeah be good people when they mm. don't have very much to begin with mm. either mm. um yeah and it's just the feminism's not right out there on front street but mm. it's there mm. um and you know having like a very female focused book as well isn't always something that you get you tend to get one where it's like oh well it's a love story so there's a strong female and a strong male lead but that's mm. not really the case in little women right. i find you know it's it's a little bit they it's mostly it's really very like female oriented and really like all of the strong characters are women right which i love i love to see it every once in a while yeah. also i don't know what it is there's something about 
the seasons are constantly changing throughout the course mm. of the book because it's over a number of years right. that it takes place. And there's something about like changing seasons and just like following them through the changing seasons. Like, you know, when they start, I think it's it's almost Christmas when they start. It's right. like basically like Christmas Day, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some following them through sort of like the changing seasons and also sort of, you know, the representation that that has, like the seasons of their lives are changing. They are growing. They are learning. Yeah. They are becoming their own people. It's very, um, very relatable and and yes um i find that you get this kind of cozy feeling with any story that takes place over multiple years and multiple seasons especially Um, if the seasons are described in any way shape or form yes and and i think we as humans we just really appreciate knowing that time frame yeah um i know i do and and it's something that we appreciate you know when we binge watch a series of tv you know we feel like we're really getting to know the characters um we see it in harry potter how they go through all the seasons and you learn about you know the different years that they're going through I think that it just makes the story so much cozier and it just makes it something that you want to go back to because you actually feel like that part of it is related relatable even if nothing else is and so you can immerse yourself in the story that way yeah and I there's something that I feel works really well in this particular instance like Louisa May Alcott um you know she was told to write like a book for girls basically or girls book and she didn't really want to at first but she really pulled it off because even when you even every single character is fully formed they have their own ideas and they're different from one another like they're distinguishable and I feel like she wrote each of them with love they weren't written Mm. like but this is the shitty sister Mm. like this is the one we don't care about this is the annoying sister or something like that nothing and despite the fact that you know some you know, critics and things have, like, poked at the fact that, like, Meg, the oldest sister, that, you know, she winds up, she marries a man and, like, has children and they struggle financially and things. I don't think that character, I don't think, was written for that to be a negative thing. Mm -hmm. That was what she chose to do with her life, what she wanted to Mm -hmm. do with her life. Mm -hmm. And I think that there is, I think that it's, I think that the way it's written, I disagree. I don't think it's something that was written um, in any negative light. I don't Mm -hmm. think any of the sisters or the characters are portrayed particularly negatively. Mm -hmm. No, I, I would agree with that. I, I think that, again, like I said, we're really rooting for all the characters. Oh, and, yeah. And you can tell that they're just good people. And it's it's just, a, you know, a coming-of-age story. It is. It is, like, one of those, I think, coming-of-age stories that so many others after it have kind of been based on. And I think it will continue to mm-hmm. have that sort of effect on people as they read it. Absolutely. Love it. And I love it. Yeah. <laughs> all right. What's your next one? Oh God, we're going old. Oh, we're we're kicking it old school with my sure. next favorite, and uh, I apologize in advance because I can talk about this for for days. So we'll edit it out. <laughs> so, um, my next favorite is the Canterbury Tales by Geoffrey Chaucer. Yeah. Um, this is one that. I suppose we don't talk about as much these days. Um, I'll give you some background. I heard Middle English the first time when I was studying um, in England. And um, one of my teachers was able to read Middle English and he read it out loud. And I thought it was the coolest thing I had ever heard. Dope. (laughs) It's dope because... It means that there's a version of English that exists that not all of us can speak. And as somebody who adores English, 
I thought this was just the coolest thing. It's not even the only version either, is it? Well, that was what I was going to say next. (laughs) So I since then realized that we also have Old English, um, which uh, going off on a bit of a tangent here, um, fun fact, most of uh, Tolkien's work, especially The Hobbit, was based on um, a lot of notions of Old English and um, mythology and, you know, storytelling from old english oh yeah um you know you look at the hobbit it's very closely based on beowulf so um oh god yeah i really yeah i encourage you all to take a look at that if you're interested and on you know in nerding out on different versions of english but (laughs) you nerd out on all the versions of english particularly (laughs) if there's like some sort of fantastical element oh my god oh my gosh i love it you know beowulf there's a dragon there's old English, like what more do you want? Anyway, um, <laughs> but today I'm talking about the Canterbury Tales. So if you're not familiar with what the Canterbury Tales are, I'm sure many people have heard about this. Um, it's a collection of um, 24 stories. So what it is, is um, Chaucer wrote this story of 29 pilgrims who are going on a pilgrimage to um, visit a uh, a religious grave. I'll just say it that way. Um, And this was actually written in the 14th century. So this is old. Um, And the reason why I enjoy this so much is because when you take a look at what Chaucer writes, not only in the Canterbury Tales, but most of his work, he really is making fun of the British bourgeoisie. Yeah. Even though um, he was actually part of the bourgeoisie, he was like um, right-hand man of, um, you know, kings and politicians anyway. <laughs> um, but he is constantly making fun of um, what's going on. Everything he wrote, well, not everything, but most of what he wrote was a satire. Um, And some of his other works, uh, there are stories that are based on them. So um, he wrote, for example, Troilus and Crusade. Uh, Tristan and Isolde was basically a copy paste of Troilus and Crusade. Um, So anyway, I could digress for years on Mm -hmm. Chaucer and I could do a whole podcast on his various works, but the Canterbury Tales. So 29 pilgrims are going on a pilgrimage and what's happening is at the beginning they're all sharing stories um in a pub in london and the plan was that each of these pilgrims were meant to have their story on the way and they were meant to have a story on the way back but unfortunately chaucer passed away while he was writing these tales so we only got 24 of them Mm -hmm. and by only i mean this is a hefty tome there is a lot um and what each character represents, each pilgrim, they represent some piece of British society from the 14th century. Um, and I'll pick out my favorites. So my two favorites are actually the pardoner and the summoner. And the reason why I love these two is because, first of all, again, and I'm sensing a bit of a, a pattern here in my preference to characters but these two are kind of the most despicable disgusting people why do you like such shit characters you know you only like them in like we watch movies and we read books and you're like oh yes so fucked up but then in real life she's like ew what a terrible human being and says, i just want to preface that by saying shireen's like not a horrible person she just has toxic taste in characters i think what it is is i just 
I enjoy reading characters who are just shamelessly awful yeah. because they expose, they're like a satire or like a, a caricature of those individuals who exist in society whom I do get on my soapbox about in real life yeah. uh, because they do exist. Um, and so the Canterbury Tales is actually quite informative when you read them because you do learn a lot about history. And so if you look at first the partner, so what was a pardoner? Uh, these were individuals who existed in the church um, and they granted pardons to people for committing sin. So we're talking Catholic church here and um, sinning was one of the biggest crimes that you could commit in the 14th century. And so what the pardoner would do was he would work very closely with the summoner because the summoner would go to people's houses when they heard that they had committed a crime or a sin and they would summon them to go before the church and, uh, you know, plead innocent or guilty for their crime, their sin, and receive uh, punishment accordingly. So what the partner would do was he would offer pardons to sins, but you had to pay him for it. That sounds about right. That sounds like now. Right. And so so it was all like bribery, basically. And so this partner who's in this story, he goes off and is basically flaunting how he blackmails people <laughs> to get money from them and invents things uh, to say that he will give them pardons if they don't want him to report their sins to the summoner. Um, and so these two work very closely, and uh, I believe that their tales are one after the other. Mm. What's most interesting about the Canterbury Tales and can be a little bit confusing is that each pilgrim has an introduction. So the partner, the summoner, the knight, they would have an introduction about themselves, but their actual story is not necessarily about them. It's about something completely different. So if you take the nun's priest tale, for example, it's about a chicken and a hen. A chicken. <laughs> and so all of the stories are to teach you some sort of moral lesson but at this but really what they're doing is they're making fun of society and they're poking fun at everybody and they're saying isn't it ridiculous how we live right now this is what we do um and so that's what i love so much about chaucer and especially the uh, middle english component of this just makes it so much more fun what's well, like the ultimate sort of you know write what you know isn't it he's yeah. part of the upper class and worked with people all the time was surrounded by people who were part of the upper class and chose to use that in his writings people write what they know a lot of writers will say that you know you write what you know and that's when you write what you do what you're best at basically and I think that you know it shows in works like this <laughs> just I love I think everybody's everybody's like one image of Chaucer because it's not exactly something that's been done like in film very much and this is something that I'm sure a lot of people don't even know like unless you've seen that Heath Ledger movie A Knight's Tale you're like oh. who's Jeffrey Chaucer who's Jeffrey Chaucer yes I love you Paul Bettany <laughs> <laughs> yes uh if you're listening to this <laughs> Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, I think that it's important to, if, no, not important. I'm going to rewind on that. If you love literature, if you want to look at kind of the roots in literature and a lot of our stories, look at Chaucer and look at what he wrote. Because um, a lot of his works are just hilarious when you like break them down. Um, he wrote The Legends of Good Women. And it's all about famous women from history, like Cleopatra. Mm. Um, 
I can't even think of any others off the top of my head, but Cleopatra is one of them. And he gives the story of each of them. And at the end of each of them, when their husbands die, they also, they, they die themselves. Like they decide to end their own lives. And I think that he's just poking fun once again at this mentality that a good woman has to do everything that her husband does or what her husband tells her. So Chaucer is kind of the king of satire from the 14th century yeah um take a look at his works they are definitely worth it so back over to you megan your next favorite all right um this will come as no surprise to anyone who knows anything about me but my next favorite is frankenstein by mary shelley the og the og (laughs) not even no that's not true i should i should backtrack that completely so Shelley didn't, she definitely did not write the first gothic novel, but I think that she is the person who has popularized it the most, probably to this day. And on top of that, and again, it's debated, however, she is kind of credited with having written, I guess, one of the first science fiction novels, or at least a novel that, you know, did rely on a lot of science fiction elements, right? And God, there's just so much... There's just so much good. There's so much atmosphere to it. There's so much going on. You know, it's told in several different parts from different perspectives, which I actually think really helps the narrative a lot as well. You would not want to read this book if it was only told from Victor Frankenstein's perspective. You would get annoyed with it. Um, And it would be the same thing if it were told from the perspective of the ship's captain. So, you know, at the beginning of the novel, there's a ship's captain who's sailing through the Arctic, basically, and finds... Uh, Victor Frankenstein stranded and sees this large figure kind of running away in the distance and is like what the hell's going on so he brings this guy onto his ship ship he's like injured he's ill because he's probably dying of exposure Mm. Um, and then you know the narration truly begins Victor Frankenstein which everybody thinks no the monster's not Frankenstein the man who created him is Frankenstein goes through you know his whole basically his childhood having grown up um and deciding that he wants to create something and so in doing so he decides that he's going to basically create life after death and reanimate a corpse it's pretty much this is like the ultimate red flag <laughs> when it comes to trying to play god <laughs> you, you you reap what you sow my guy and so like victor frankenstein's a piece of shit okay mm. see i like my toxic characters but i also like it when there are characters involved in a story that i like like mm. characters that are good that are and in this particular case mm. it's the monster right you know once you you know after a lot of back and forth thing there's a lot of you know, monster becomes angry because, of course, as I love as soon as Frank, of course, as soon as Victor Frankenstein creates something and it's not perfect, he's like, ah, I reject it. It's ugly. Blah. Like, God, God, yeah. you're such a shitty, shitty person. Anyway, and when the monster takes off later and does kill people, because I'm sure it doesn't even quite understand at first what its own strength is. Um, you know, once its narration begins, I think is really wh- where. You, where any of the emotions of the novel, like any like emotional grounding that the mm. story has comes from is just the monster who's also, who's very intelligent, very articulate, very yeah. sensitive, mm. um, and is just, has been thrust unwillingly into a world mm. where he is automatically rejected. And yeah. I think that there's something to that where 
wherein, you know, everybody has felt that way at yeah. some point in their lives. Everyone has felt like the monster. I hope yep. not too many people have felt like Victor Frankenstein because then you, you deserve it, my guy. <laughs> like, Well, I think that, that a lot of the themes in, in this novel, especially around the monster, is first of all, feeling empathy. Yeah. You know, you feel a lot of empathy for this monster as you read it. Um, and, you know, that kind of that feeling of imposter syndrome that we all have yeah. whenever we're put into a, a brand new situation that we may or may not have asked for. Um, I think that those are kind of two really big elements that that you see immediately when you start reading the the monster's point of view. Oh, yeah. Um, and you can really resonate with him. And it just goes back to really hating Victor Frankenstein. Yeah, because, like, you know, when you're reading the beginning of the novel, you're like, oh, this guy's stupid. And, you know, you know you're like, okay, all right, somebody very high and mighty about what they're doing. Uh, but you don't you don't hate him in the same way, I think. And you, you're like, ooh, ooh, a monster. Like, ooh, scary. Yeah. And I'm sure that even for uh, readers at the time that this was initially published in the 1800s would have been surprised probably to find them themselves sympathizing mm. with a creature mm. that at the time would have been considered like very scary you know like we see yeah. it now and it's always like you know very popularized by like the very Boris Karloff-esque sort of like square head yeah little sticking out of the neck right. and like a big suit on really wide shoulders and everything and he is meant to be like eight or nine feet tall or something right. ridiculous um but there's but you I think we're at a point now where people will sympathize with that even more because we look past a lot of like mm. that outward superficial aspect mm. of it and everybody as soon as you so you know as soon as you turn things over to the monster the narration turns things over to the monster's perspective um yeah you get back into um the ship's captain who mm. sort of is listening to this entire story from Frankenstein's perspective and seeing this, you know, and even he of course is led to believe that this, this monster needs to be stopped. Cause yes, it has killed a couple of people, right. obviously. Um, yeah, you know, but God, it's just, it's nature versus nurture, man. It yeah. just, he wasn't born. He was made right. and he was not, there was no, there was no time for him to be nurtured in any way, shape, or form But he, before he was just thrust into this horrible, cold, cruel world that yeah. just has no sympathy for him at all and refuses to gain any understanding mm -hmm. of him. And so how else, you know, how else is he expected to react yep. in these cases? And it's just, it's so beautifully written. Um I think a lot of people who are, like, familiar with the novel know about the story, you know, of Mary Shelley was, like, sort of on, like, a small trip with... She'd originally actually visited Castle Frankenstein in Germany, mm. um, and she was, I think, quite inspired by it and fascinated by the idea of it, and then subsequently, you know, on a trip with her husband, Percy Shelley, and with Lord Byron, and, mm. God, what was his name? John Polidari, who, fun fact, wrote a short story after that same trip called The Vampire, which was mm. actually published a good few decades before Bram Stoker wrote Dracula. Really? Yeah. Interesting. One of the one of the OG vampire stories. It was a very inspirational trip. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> they had basically a competition, right? It was yeah. like, okay, who can who can come up with the best scary story? Who's going right. to come up with the best one? Uh -huh, she won, but she it was won. how she had come mm. up with her idea initially and then I think it was published within a year or two of that trip, basically. Mm. And I don't think there was ever a time where people hated it either. It wasn't one of those that was like, oh, like, controversial. oh, God, controversial. Anyway, yeah. it came out, people loved it. Yeah. Because um, it was wonderful. And Mary Shelley was a badass. Yeah. Also, it's the most gothic story I've ever heard in my life, and I hope it's true. Mm. 
her husband had alcohol problems who didn't at that point obviously (laughs) so he drowned after he'd fallen off a boat Mm. um and she fun fact you didn't attend the funeral at the funeral of the wife you did not attend your husband's funeral at that Mm. time because it was said that she didn't attend and i was like what but it Mm. turns out you didn't no probably like a men only yeah kind of shindig garbage anyway um she did not attend the funeral and it said supposedly that uh, he was cremated afterwards Mm. his heart did not burn and it was given to her after which is the most goth thing i've ever heard in my life and i love it and i hope it's true can you imagine if you just like go to visit mary shelley later and she's like oh yes that's just my husband's heart in like a in like a box like sitting on the fire mantle if if i were her i would have done some like you know telltale heart shit with that you know (laughs) don't bury it under the floors asking for it at that point oh god poe would be so happy Okay, this brings us to our last one. These have been in no particular order. Right. I think we're just like spewing them out as they come because I can't I can't do it. Every mm. time somebody's like, oh, put them in order, I'm like, no. No. And also, side note, like to choose our favorite classics. Oh, God. Very difficult. Yes. Um, we had to really categorize and work hard on Oh, this. my God. Yeah, 100%. This was like, this was <laughs> cutting down a list of like 20 to yeah. so, like a few each. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, our last one that we kind of, I think, collectively both really agree that we wanted to have on the list because uh, who doesn't want a little Shakespeare in there is Othello. Othello. Yes. Our buddy Othello. Um, <laughs> so Othello is an interesting one. If you haven't had the chance of watching an adaptation or watching, you know, the play or reading it, mm-hmm. Othello is the story of Othello. Um, who <laughs> <laughs> Good way to start it off. <laughs> Just in case you didn't know. Um, who for all intents and purposes, is really basically just shit out of luck all throughout this story. Well, simply um, because he's not born white, basically. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it starts off where you're kind of like, ooh, progress, because, um, you know, this man is kind of a high-ranking official in the military, but the opening scene is a big humdinger of an argument between um, uh, Rodrigo and Iago, Everybody's got an O. Everybody has Cassio, an O. Rodrigo, Iago, Othello, Desdemona. Oh, um, so they've all got an O. Um, and uh, you know, we're it's pretty obvious pretty quickly that Othello is viewed as a bit of a villain by most of the other characters. Yes. Um, it's it's come out that he has married Desdemona in secret without consulting on her papa. Her dad is pissed. Her, isn't her dad her also Barbancio or Barbancio something? Barbancio, oh, who... Um, is it Barbancio? It is, um, I think. I think so. Um, and he decides um, to... Because Roderigo wants to marry Desdemona, and then it be, you know he finds out that his daughter already got married. Uh-huh. Um, and so he goes to the Senate and tries to get them to persecute Othello, which doesn't actually work out in his favor. Because Othello's like a war hero, basically. He is a war hero, and everybody loves him. Um, and so that doesn't go down quite the way he wanted. Except everybody loves him except Iago, who's well, his confidant and who, of course, he thinks is on his side. Well, and, Iago got passed over for a promotion. Yeah, but <laughs> what we, yeah, but what you swiftly, he pretends it doesn't bother him, but what we swiftly learn about Iago, who's probably one of the best written villains in any of Ever. Shakespeare's plays. Love him. Um, is that Othello, uh, Othello, Iago, 
Um, he's, uh, he's not out for anybody but himself, guys. Absolutely. And, like, this man is married, but, like, who boy, oh, does his wife get the wrong Emilia, end of the stick like, here. like, the most put upon of any character. I swear to God, I feel bad for her. Mm-hmm. And then he, doesn't he kill her later? He sure does. Well, that's later he totally on. Does. Um, yeah, but, you know, to your point, Iago is only out for himself, and, you know, he... As you're reading the story, you kind of think that he is doing all this horrible stuff, um, turning everybody against Othello, but on top of that, getting Othello to turn against his own wife. Oh my god. And really messing with Othello's mental state. Oh yeah. And and it's, it's a it's, lot of gaslighting it's happening. It's a lot of gaslighting and, and it's a lot of like, you know, him speaking to one person, feeding them lies, getting their anger levels up, then them going and beating on someone else. And, and it's all Iago, like the puppeteer behind it's a this lot of entire... Work, man. It is a lot of work. Um, and you think, wow, all this because, you know, you were passed over for a promotion. But I think it goes a bit deeper than that. Um, there was a really famous essay written about Iago, about how he actually has no motive to his no. malignancy. And I think it's it's really just the fact that he knows that he's technically smarter than most of the other characters. And he feels like he should be the one in charge because he is more intelligent. Yeah. Um, and again, like, as humans, who has not felt this way in certain situations, Oh, absolutely. Right? Particularly in a work setting. In a work setting, you know, you get passed over for a promotion yeah. because somebody else was, you know, favored and, and you feel like you deserved it. But Iago goes to the extreme here and yeah. he ruins a lot of lives. He sure does. He sure does. So he ruins Othello's life. Um, Othello ends up killing Desdemona because he believes what Iago told him. Which, which is, is that she's sleeping with Cass. With Cassio, Yes, yeah. um, and unfortunately, he ropes in his own wife into this big unknowingly as well, and she's <sighs> so mad. She is so mad, and, and so he dies. kills her. I know, God, I feel. I think. I think. Strangely enough, of everybody, like I feel, I do feel bad for Desdemona because I feel like she's just there. Like, why is my husband acting like such a crazy person? But I feel like Amelia might be like my the character that I feel the most sympathy for throughout the course mm. of the play, just because God, she's. God, she's got a number. God, to realize that you're married to someone like that, I can only imagine yep. how that would feel. How that would affect you. Oh, it would be awful, awful, and awful. to her credit, she does speak out at the end. She does. And she does say, like, you know, he made me lie um, because it was because of her, technically her yeah. lie, uh, that um, uh, Othello believed that Cassio was having an affair with Desdemona. Um, there was a handkerchief involved. Oh, as right. Proof. It was the evidence... <laughs> right. Of their infidelity, um, and Amelia didn't really realize how far Iago was going to go with this no. um, until the end when she does speak out and say, whoa, hang on, everyone a hold your nanes. Um, <laughs> this, <laughs> this was all a lie, but it's a little bit late now because Othello's actually um, killed Desdemona um, by yeah. smothering her. Yeah, and it's just, man, you can't help but kind of just be... You're, you're kind of impressed with Iago. He's despicable, but you're kind of impressed with it because really, he is just smart enough to realize that all he has to do is plant the seed and then rely mm-hmm. on everyone else's racism mm-hmm. to just carry all of mm-hmm. that along. And it works. And because it of course work. it does. Because art and life, you know? Exactly. Yep. And, and so, once again, in our classics, we have found a theme that has carried through to today very sadly. And I wish that I could say that that in 2022, 
we aren't seeing as many um, social issues caused by racism as we do, but we do. Yeah. So it was a problem way back when. It's still a problem today. So keep in mind that Shakespeare is still relevant, kids, in case you were wondering. In case you thought that he was just an old fart and that everybody was forcing you to read him in high school. (laughs) Well, I mean, they were. They were, but he's also got some interesting messages. Yeah. Othello, very thought-provoking and uh, a good story. Absolutely. Um, ooh, okay, do we have time for a couple of honorable mentions? Sure. Because we didn't have time. We couldn't narrow down the list, I think, to a point where we were just like, oh, yes, only these five, and that's it forever. These are not the only classics. Everything we're talking about today are not the only classics that we like, everybody. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of them, but this episode would be two and a half hours long, and we're not going to do that to everybody because it's mean. So, mm-hmm. all right. Um, my first, I have two quick honorable mentions. One of them is Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, Mm. because just as far as children's literature, even to adulthood, I don't care what anybody says, it's Mm. still relevant and there's just so much to it. And there's such a sense of whimsy that I think has just inspired generations upon generations of of whimsy in some way, shape or form. I think it might be one of the whimsiest children's stories that has ever existed. Um, Super psychedelic. A hundred percent. Just everything, (laughs) everything about like the, like Wonderland itself, about the characters, about everything. And when you, when you do dig into it, the amount of also sort of social commentary that exists within the characters that Lewis Carroll wrote. Mm -hmm. Um, is also a really interesting, it's also a really interesting thing to get into. So yeah, if you've never heard of it, um, you should, <laughs> have you been living under you, a rock? Have you heard of Alice in Wonderland? Have you heard of it? Yeah. Just, just anyway, just keep it in mind. It's just a great one. If you haven't read the book, it's, it's worth picking mm. up. Um, and my second one to keep along the same lines is Macbeth. I'm sorry. I can't go, I can't go anywhere Shakespeare wise without talking about it. It's, I, I think it's, it's my favorite. I'd mm. say it's my favorite Shakespeare. Mm. Um, it's cause there are witches in Oh it. fuck, I love it so much. Does anybody, does anybody want to know where the actual phrase double double toil and trouble comes from it's this fucking play mm-hmm. okay it's amazing there are witches there is magic there's lady macbeth uh what more could you want queen queen <laughs> she's horrible but god she's great at it see we love a good villain we do That's love a good villain is. we can't help it yeah um what it's scottish there are also moors and <laughs> shit moors. Uh, any any classic with a moor is a slam dunk we gotta love it we gotta love it and they're just <laughs> Just a really interesting amount of characters. It's got some really great monologues, which coming from like a theater kid, I think it's mm. just something that I appreciate about it. Mm. Um, but yeah, God, Macbeth is just one of those, or the Scottish play, however you'd like to refer to yeah. it, is just one of those. It could have something to do with half of my family being Scottish. I have no idea. But yeah, it resonates and I love it. Um, I don't think I'll ever stop loving it. I've seen it on stage. I've seen films. I've read it more than once. And I just don't think there's a time where I, I won't want to do that. So Macbeth. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> my honorable mentions. Uh, the first one I will start with is um, a journal of a play of the plague year. Um, so this <laughs> everybody just crickets. Crickets. <laughs> no, y- y'all are probably sitting here going, "What, what? is this?" Um, this was actually technically the first ever work of fiction that exists bananas what i why i say fiction is because um again going back to uh ye old england times (laughs) 
the <laughs> writing a work of fiction, so fiction was considered a lie, which was a sin. Yeah. Um, and so this guy managed to sin his way into publishing a novel just under the pretense that it was his journal but it wasn't it was actually his uncle's journal of um london during the plague and uh if if you haven't had enough of covid well um you can read about the plague in london and how that went down <laughs> oh my god i don't know if i will uh i don't know if anybody's like oh i'd really like to know more about that at this particular moment in time it might have something to do with the fact that you read it like years ago right um but it's it's pretty good um so that because it gives you it paints a really good picture of like what was happening yeah. during the plague uh the other honorable mention that I'm, I guess I'm going to have to do it. Uh, Northanger Abbey uh, from Jane Austen. I love that you're forcing yourself into it. Okay. Jane Austen, Side not my note, guys, we don't really like Jane Austen very much here. I'm sorry if we're offending people. Just keep in mind this is all subjective. This is yeah. our opinion yeah. about these classics, what we like, what we don't like. And yeah. Jane Austen's not high up on the list for either of us. She is not. Um, in the words of Marianne Evans, uh, Jane Austen wrote about the pointless wailings of women. True dead. Um, and unfortunately, even though she's viewed as a feminist, I don't know I don't, why. I don't know why. Everybody gets bloody married at the end. Because <laughs> that's all they want. They all just want to get married. And that's all that the stories focus on as well. And it's, it's again, I bring up Northanger Abbey because I feel like there's a little bit more substance to this story. Yeah. And again, it's a gothic novel. Ironically written when she was she hated gothic novels and right. this was her way of making fun of them because she points a few of them out by title i believe specifically she does. in the she book does. and it's so funny that it turned out to be yeah her novel that i've appreciated the most probably because of those elements that she added to it maybe she should have thought about making fun of the gothic genre a bit more yeah god we might have liked more of the books <laughs> But yeah, oh God, we want to know what you guys think of the classics in general. What are your favorites? What do you like? What don't you like? What do you, you know, what do you think everybody should read at least once in their lives? So you can let us know. You can hit us up on Instagram at FullyBookedCA. You can check out our Facebook group at Facebook.com slash groups slash book was way better. And you can check out our coverage of everything classics that we already have and everything coming up on the website over at fully-booked.ca. But until next time, guys, keep reading. Thanks, everyone.